The Water Values Podcast, Session 7. Podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now, here's your host, Dave McGinty. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Water Values Podcast. We're already at session seven. Man, time sure does fly. We've also hit 1,000 downloads, so thank you so much for continuing to listen to the podcast. It's greatly appreciated. I'd also be greatly appreciative if you would be so kind as to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. That helps with visibility and with getting the word out so that more people who are interested in water can start to find the podcast and listen if they choose. And also, don't forget to join the mailing list on thewatervalues.com. If a member of the mailing list, you'll get sneak previews of upcoming guests, topics, and features on the podcast and the website. So please head over and join up. And before we get on with the show, I just want to thank and acknowledge those of you who uh, expressed regret at the theft that occurred while we were in Moab your thoughtfulness is very appreciated. And just remember that, you know, these things happen in life and and a lot of a lot of life is how you react to those types of things. So use when something like that happens to you, use it as a teachable moment and move on. Um, like I say, everything that was stolen was replaceable and we still have our health. We still have all that good stuff. So, again, thank you so much um, for your concern and um, greatly appreciate it. Okay, on to the show. Today is an interview that deals with an aspect of water that I'm not terribly familiar with. Our guest is Dr. Ellen Wool of Colorado State University. She is a fluvial geomorphologist. I'll let her explain what that is. In any event, she opened my eyes to the importance of rivers and especially our headwater streams and rivers. I find the interconnectedness of rivers with our lives absolutely captivating. I really think Ellen's research provides great context into the current debate over the EPA rulemaking concern, quote, waters of the United States, end quote. I'm not taking a position on that rulemaking in this session, but I believe that the story Ellen tells is worth listening to in order to make informed decisions on that rulemaking. And if you've been paying attention to previous podcasts, you'd know that the EPA rulemaking concerning the waters of the United States has been a subtext in several episodes. Matt Klein made a veiled reference to it in session one, Jen Vervier identified it directly in session three, and although not directly mentioned, issues affecting waters of the United States could be discerned from session six of the podcast with Jim Salzman when he was talking about the sources of bottled water, and tap water for that matter. Well, if you're a regular listener, you know that before we get into the podcast, I need to make a few disclaimers. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that thinks water issues are interesting and that publication, public, <laughs> and that public education about water issues is needed. And that includes educating myself about water issues because no one knows everything about water. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Dr. Wool, thanks so much for coming on the Water Values Podcast. I greatly appreciate your time this morning. Um, and may I call you Ellen? Please. Oh, terrific. Well, if we could start off, Ellen, if you could tell us about your background and the story of how your interest in water began, that would be great. 
I, well, I've been interested in science since I was a child. My father was a high school science teacher. He taught uh, primarily biology and chemistry, so he got me started on science projects when I was very young, and I really enjoyed it. And I really loved the outdoors and natural science. Uh, I spent a lot of time outside as a child and, and as a family as I was growing up. So by the time I got to the university, I knew I wanted to go into either ecology or geology, and it wasn't quite a coin flip, but it was pretty close. Uh, I really <laughs> enjoyed both subjects and took courses in both of them. And I decided to go into geology, and then and I've seen this um, with undergraduates that I've taught. Each geology course that you take covers a fairly different area of geology, and if you're really intrigued by the subject, you, you decide you want to be that kind of geologist in succession every course you go through, so structural or sedimentology. And geomorphology was one of the last courses I took. Uh, I, I have, even at my freshman year, though, when I took the intro geology course, I was really fascinated by physical processes, and it, the focus on rivers didn't come until graduate school. Uh, I knew I wanted to study surface processes and landforms, and of course I like rivers. I think everybody likes rivers. Uh, but, but as I began to go deeper into geomorphology, I realized that most geomorphologists work on rivers. Uh, that's by far the largest sub-area within the discipline. And I kind of started down that path. And I should say that uh, since then, I've, I've kind of circled back to ecology because I work with a lot of aquatic and riparian ecologists and a lot of my work with rivers, although it's based in physical processes, definitely incorporates ecologic aspects. So I think I'm, I'm essentially having my cake and eating it too. <laughs> okay, so, well, I think you've, you've done a good job of telling us kind of how you got into, into uh, the study of rivers and the geomorphology, but it's also got a special name, right? It's called fluvial geomorphology, and what, what exactly does a fluvial geomorphologist do? <laughs> we just intimidate other people by saying <laughs> Um, it, it comes from the Latin roots, it, but basically a fluvial geomorphologist studies physical process and form in rivers. So there are people who specialize in water chemistry, for example. There are people who specialize in fish or in aquatic insects or um, how nutrients move through rivers, but I look primarily at hydraulics and sediment transport and how those interact to shape river form. Okay. And on a on a broad sense, could you talk a little bit about just the importance of rivers. You know, that's what you study. If you could just talk about why rivers are important to us. Yeah, there's a lot of different perspectives that you could address that, but I guess one of them is that if you think about the, the total surface area uh, of the earth that's above the, the ocean level, rivers actually occupy a fairly small proportion of that, but they're disproportionately important in terms of what's sometimes called ecosystem services. So the goods and services that humans can access from natural systems. And in rivers, it's things like clean water, navigation, uh, fisheries. And moving away from a strictly human-centered point of view, rivers are very, very rich environments in terms of the diversity of both plant and animal species and the abundance of species. So the river in the adjacent area, which is sometimes called the riparian corridor, let's say the floodplains, as well as the river, is accessed by a lot of terrestrial species. Um, just the, the simplest version, animals and birds will come down to drink, and they'll preferentially spend time in that riparian environment. So sometimes I think of ribbons as, or as rivers as these fairly thin lines drawn through the landscape, but if you drew them in terms of proportional 
importance, they'd be much, much wider than they actually are. So that, that's a couple of reasons I think that rivers are particularly important. Well, thanks, Dr. Wool. Could you please talk a little bit about what a, what a headwater river is and how it is important um, in the, the broader scheme of things? Yeah, headwater rivers are the point where the river network starts. So it's where you've got sort of diffuse flow across the surface that concentrates into a channel where, where you could walk up and say, oh, yeah, that's a, a river channel, even if it's a tiny one. So whether you're in a mountainous environment or out in the middle of the Great Plains, they're very important because they're the point where material first enters the river network. So anything coming off the uplands, water, sediment, nutrients, contaminants, the little rivers are basically the interface between the, the terrestrial and the aquatic environment. They're also important because they provide unique habitats that aren't available in, in very large rivers. There are other uh, different species of plants and animals that can only survive in those little rivers, or there are animals that use those small rivers for a certain portion of their life cycle. And you can think of salmon going upstream to spawn. Some of those big fish go up into very, very small rivers and when the eggs hatch, the little fish uh, kind of need the protection of that shallower water where they can get away from predators. Headwaters are also important because they're a place where a lot of uh, chemical reactions occur. As we've learned more about how things like nitrogen and phosphorus and carbon move through river networks, it turns out that a lot of the processing, as it's called, or the uptake by organisms is occurring disproportionately in the, the headwater rivers. And if you think about a, a river cross-section, if you imagine you were looking into or out of the direction of flow, a big river has a large volume relative to the surface area. And the surface area would be where the water is in contact with the better banks. As you go to a progressively smaller channel, that volume to surface area ratio changes, and there's, there's a greater surface area proportionally. And the surface area, the, the bed and the banks, are where a lot of that biochemical processing occurs. That's where microbes and bacteria can take up things like nitrogen and carbon. And that becomes very important today or uh, in the contemporary world because a lot of human activities are dramatically increasing the amount of carbon and nitrogen in particular going into rivers. And if that's not taken up biologically, if it just gets flushed downstream, you can end up with some very severe water quality issues, as we see in the Mississippi, for example, and the Gulf of Mexico because of excess nitrogen going into the Gulf. The other reason that headwater channels are important is that they're really the majority of a river network. Now, we're not used to thinking of uh, really small rivers as being that important, but uh, one of my colleagues once told me the, an analogy that I like. It's as if you imagine a, a deciduous tree with all its leaves on. If we don't take care of the, the little headwater rivers, it's kind of like stripping all the leaves off that tree and expecting it to survive. The, the headwater rivers really feed the larger river networks, and they're very important to river health because of their role in doing things like taking up nutrients. So just within the last few years, I've become um, much more aware of the importance of headwater rivers, and I'm focusing a lot of my own work on those. Terrific. Well. You talked a little bit about, you know, material entering the water network, and you described the headwaters as the interface between the terrestrial and the aquatic networks. It sounds to me like these headwater rivers are, have a lot of different connections to the surrounding environment. Could you, could you kind of talk about the ways in which the headwater rivers connect to the environment, surrounding environment? 
Yeah, and they, they do have a, a huge number of connections. And I sometimes um, I like to play on the idea that you know everyone on Earth, all, all humans are have at most six degrees of separation. And I talk about rivers as having six degrees of connection with the greater environment. There's the things that, that are probably obvious uh, to most people when they look at a river. So there's the, the downstream connection or upstream connection if you've got things migrating upstream like salmon. But there's also lateral connections. Uh, material can come in from the uplands. If you're in a mountainous environment, you can have things like debris flows or landslides or rockfall bringing sediment in. Uh, even in a flat environment, you've got material coming, exchanging between the channel and the floodplain. And, and when I say material here, I'm just using that as a very generic term for water, sediment, organisms, nutrients, contaminants. So a variety of um, both living organisms and inert materials. There's also vertical exchanges. Uh, rivers can have water infiltrating into the subsurface going all the way down to the groundwater, or the groundwater can be rising if it's what's called a gaining stream and contributing to the stream. And then at shallower depths, there's something called the hyperreic zone, which literally means beneath the flow. It's, it's the shallow portion of the groundwater where you have very rapid exchange between the surface and subsurface. And if you think of a, a river, there's almost a mirror river under the surface where there's there can be uh, fairly rapid flow. There's a lot of organisms, uh, bottom-dwelling insects that live in there, and bacteria and microbes. So again, there's some important chemical reactions going on. So that, that vertical exchange can be very important to biological productivity and water quality. And then there's also vertical exchange with the atmosphere. Of course, the obvious one is precipitation coming down, but there's a lot of things that fall into rivers that aren't just water. Uh, you can have dry deposition of dust, which is um, silt and clay-sized particles, but you can also have a lot of chemicals coming in from the air. Um, nitrates are a big one that are of concern, mercury, for example. And then, of course, there's aquatic organisms going back and forth, um, stream insects hatching out, like caddisflies and mayflies going out into the atmosphere to complete the adult portion of their life cycle. Um, all of the waterfowl that go back and forth between the atmosphere and the, the water as part of their life cycle. So any river segment has quite a few connections to the greater environment, and it's not just the immediate environment. This can be connections that transcend the watershed boundaries. I live in Colorado, and I work in the Colorado Front Range. Uh, I do a lot of my work in Rocky Mountain National Park, and there are some very severe problems developing over time with water quality in the national park because of atmospheric deposition of nitrates that are coming from the urban area and the agricultural areas at the base of the mountains. So something like 100 miles horizontal distance. And it also goes much farther than that. There have been uh, times during the summer in particular over the last several years that I've lived here when the air quality standards in Denver have, or the, the air quality in Denver has dropped below federal standards and that's because of dust coming in at high levels in the atmosphere. And some of that dust is coming all the way from the Gobi Desert in China. So it's very much a, a global interconnection uh, that affects river networks, including headwater rivers. Could you talk a little more about your your observations and research on what, what kind of you just described as, as the uh, introduction of nitrates and such into into the headwaters rivers, what, what's, what's the outcome of that? Well, I should 
start this by saying that's that's not what I work on. That's something that uh, one of my colleagues here at CSU, in particular, Jill Barron, Dr. Jill Barron, with the U.S. Geological Survey, is focusing on. But what she's found is that there's progressive acidification of both the soils and the water at very high elevations. Her main research area is Loch Vale in Rocky Mountain National Park, and it's very ironic to me because you you hike a long time <laughs> to get up to this absolutely gorgeous lake and it looks like you're in this very pristine environment it's part of the federally designated wilderness in Rocky Mountain National Park and yet as you start to look below the surface in a sense um, and look at the details there's this history of human influence very indirectly but it is changing the soil and water chemistry there and there's some concern that as this continues those soils are going to become sufficiently acidic that it will start to affect the ecosystem there in terms of the ability of plants and animals to survive. It hasn't reached that point yet, but there has been this progressive acidification. Um, Jill has been working in Lockvale for more than 20 years, so they have long-term monitoring up there. Oh, wow. Uh, okay, so I'll, I'll get back on to the, the, the headwaters issue and the way that the headwaters uh, rivers connect to the surrounding environment. It sounded like a very complex um, way in which the surrounding environment interacts with those headwaters. Let's let's take the example of a you know trees or a, a tree falling across a stream or river and creating a log jam. What what is the impact of of that log jam on the stream? That's a really interesting story because um, I started looking at wood in rivers around here a few years ago, and, and it's been sort of a fascinating unraveling of this very complicated interaction. So you have a, a tree that falls into a river, um, and it can, of course, be either transported downstream the next time there's a big flow, or it can stay there and start to trap other things that are moving, other smaller pieces of wood. So if the tree is big enough, and that's partly a function of length, but mostly it's a function of diameter. So if you have an older or a fat tree, which um, may mean something like uh, 40 or 50 centimeters in diameter around here in, in our environment, it can initiate a logjam. And if that logjam gets uh, big enough to completely span the channel, it's just like a, a dam. Um, it's a very effective obstruction to flow. So you get a backwater you have lower velocity, and material that otherwise is in transport down the stream can be deposited in those low-velocity areas. So that's everything from pine twigs and needles and very fine sediment like some silt and clay. Um, well, those are the main things I should say around here. So organic matter and, and fine sediment. And even if that material is only trapped there for a few hours, that's an opportunity for the base of the uh, food web in the stream, so the, the bacteria and the microbes and some of the aquatic insects to begin to ingest some of that organic material in particular. So getting back to that idea of carbon and nitrogen, if you can store the particulate uh, carbon and nitrogen, which is in the form of organic matter like needles and leaves and twigs, for even a short period of time, then the biota in the form of the microbes and bacteria can start to process it, extract the nutrients. So you're moving carbon and nitrogen from dead organic matter into living tissues. And then, of course, things like fish and oozles and a variety of other organisms eat the insects. So you're essentially, I, I sometimes think of the log jams as water filters. They're, they're cleaning the water. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with carbon and nitrogen. It's just that if you get a lot of it, then it can create problems. 
So you're cleaning it of some of these nutrients and retaining them in the stream ecosystem rather than flushing them downstream. And the irony of this is that when you have lots of wood in a river and lots of log jams, it's very messy looking compared to the way many of us view rivers. It's not very aesthetically pleasing. And I, I've watched this after the 2013 flood. I just last night on the news I was hearing about how they're making it a priority to clean the rivers before the next snowmelt flood. So they're viewing wood uh, as debris and as trash, basically, that needs to be removed. And I completely understand the reason for that. In urban areas in particular, wood doesn't just create a backwater, it also increases the water level because it is an obstruction in the channel. So if you're trying to keep the water from going overbank, you don't want a lot of wood in there. But I think we go too far in the direction of removing all the wood and we really impair stream health and make these rivers, not just headwater rivers, but lower in the network as well, these, these very simplified, uniform, homogenous, uh, almost glorified irrigation canals. They're just these simplified gutters down which water and sediment move. And if you do that, you lose a lot of these ecosystem functions. You lose the ability to retain the nutrients that are present in organic matter. You lose a lot of the habitat that can support insects and fish and many of the birds that use river corridors. So you simplify the river. Um, so getting back to your question of what happens when a tree falls in, it creates a mess, but it's a very productive mess. <laughs> and you also get kind of a self-enhancing feedback because once you have one log jam, and if you've got this backwater, and sediment is accumulating in there, the channel can start to fill at that point. You're filling the pool. So that diverts the water off to one side out of the channel. It, it literally flows over the channel banks and goes somewhere else across the floodplain, and you start to form another smaller channel. So in portions of Rocky Mountain National Park where there's old-growth forest and lots of these down logs that don't decay quickly in our dry environment, they can take two or 300 years to decay, you have this maze of channels that branch and rejoin and each of them has a series of log jams in them. So it's horrible to try and get through. Uh, it's really terrible to try and photograph because there's trees everywhere and you can't see what, you're, you know, what you can see on the ground. It doesn't meet any of our preconceived notions of what constitutes an attractive river, but those are the biological hotspots. That's where you have all the, the diversity of plants and animals. You have really high rates of production. We started working on this a couple summers ago. Uh, I'm working on this with colleagues at, in government agencies and other universities, and we're seeing more of everything we measure, so more aquatic insects, more riparian spiders, more fish biomass, more plant diversity, uh, more uptake of carbon and nitrogen in these really messy reaches. So I look at what happened after the 2013 flood, and it created a lot of this physical complexity that we are now very busily removing uh, as quickly as we can before the, the snow melt really gets going again this year. Hmm. Well, well, that's very interesting. It, it sounds like um, the, the more diverse or heterogeneous this stream flow is, kind of the better it is for the environment, the more uh, nutrients that the the aquatic life and that, you know, take up. And so that that helps with overall stream health. Is that what I'm getting from you? Absolutely. There's this famous um, phrase that uh, Luna Leopold is a, a, was a very famous physiogeomorphologist. He died a few years ago. But in a 1964 te textbook, 
He described rivers as the gutters down which flow the rims of continents, which is <laughs> a really nice description of uh, the fact that you weather and erode bedrock and the sediment moves down to the oceans via rivers. But uh, most scientists now think of rivers more as ecosystems, not just physical systems. So, yeah, as you were just reiterating, the more physically complex they are, typically the more productive they are and the more healthy in terms of biodiversity, abundance of organisms, and ability to retain and process nutrients. Okay, we used the, the example of the tree uh, creating a log jam. What are some of the other kind of sources of this diversity or heterogeneity in, in streams and rivers? Well, if you look at a larger scale, um, and I'll, I'll use the rivers here in the Colorado Front Range as an example, if you think about where the rivers start up near the Continental Divide and then flow down to the mountain front, as they go down, the valley geometry alters uh, pretty substantially repeatedly. So you can go into a deep, narrow, gorge-like section and then come out into a wider, uh, lower gradient section and go back into something that's steep and narrow. So there's that very large-scale um, variability of the sort of wide, shallow sections that often have uh, more of a floodplain and a riparian zone and then going into the steep, narrow. And within any of those sections, whether they're steep and narrow or, or wide and shallow, there's, there's diversity of wood, there's diversity of the sizes of the sediment composing the substrate. Uh, you, you typically don't have all the same grain size, so you've got a mixture of some sand and gravel and some cobbles and some big boulders. If you start looking at the uh, cross-section of the channel, as I mentioned a moment ago, or, um, you've got pools and ripples as you go downstream, so those shallow areas, deeper areas, there's irregularities on the banks that can be associated with where a tree fell in and where there's a big boulder or a bedrock outcrop. So it's almost, um, well, it's not almost, it's like a fractal problem. You can look at very, very small-scale heterogeneity within a single riffle or pool, and as you back up to progressively larger scales, you still have this variability in the material composing the channel, the way the channel cross-section is arranged, so the bed and banks, uh, the way the entire longitudinal profile or, or long profile of the river is arranged between these uh, steep, narrow, and wide, low-gradient portions of the valley. And then once you get out beyond the mountain front, you've got, again, more diversity as you get into the transition zone and going into the Great Plains. Okay. Well, that's uh, absolutely fascinating how all this works. I never... I never would have realized that's you know, the the importance of stream diversity and, and river diversity. Um, so, could we talk? We've talked a lot about the natural impacts. Let's talk about the impact of human activities on on rivers. And if you could talk about some of some of the things that humans do and our activities that impact rivers, uh, I'd be interested in, in hearing what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I, I think it's not too much of a uh, generalization to say that almost everything we do ends up affecting rivers one way or another because rivers are the, the big integrators of the landscape. Uh, everything that affects the surface eventually moves downslope under gravity and into river networks. So there's the indirect effects that we have, and I mentioned one before, nitrate deposition uh, from 
mainly nitrates coming out of uh, agricultural feedlots and uh, farm fields and, and the tailpipes of cars. But if I just focus on direct effects, the net result of a lot of our activities is to simplify and homogenize rivers. If you look at dams, for example, we build a lot of dams, and what they typically do is to reduce the variation in stream flow throughout the course of an average year. So we store the flood peaks, and we often increase the base flow or the low flow conditions. So we're reducing that uh, seasonal variability on rivers. We do things like build levees, where we keep the water from going overbank onto the floodplain. We dredge rivers for navigation. We straighten them. So in a lot of different ways, we're creating something more like an irrigation canal that's this very simple, uniform conveyance for water and sediment. And I think that's because we do regard rivers mostly in a physical sense as channels down which water moves. We don't think of them as ecosystems. And that's a really unfortunate simplification that I hope, um, well, we, we are getting away from it in some sense. but. In the, in the uh, Western world, there's an awful lot of effort being devoted to restoring the physical complexity of rivers and the ecosystem processes. But what I see going on in industrializing countries or in lower income countries is doing the same things to rivers that we've done in Western Europe and the US for the last couple of hundred years. So it's uh, discouraging <laughs> to see them making many of the same mistakes over again. What kinds of case studies or other research have you conducted into the diversity or complexity of headwater streams and rivers? Well, mostly I've been focusing on things here in Colorado in the Front Range. We have an ongoing project that's called Leaky Rivers, uh, as a short title, uh, that is collaborative with people at the U.S. Geological Survey, the University of Montana, and the University of Wyoming. And what we're doing is looking at the effect of the age of the forest around the stream and how that influences the amount of wood coming into the stream and the number of log jams, and then looking at how those in turn correlate with things like the ability of the stream to take up nutrients such as carbon and nitrogen and the production of insects and fish. I've also been looking at the effect of beavers uh, and their dam building activities in creating what have been called beaver meadows, that very broad wet meadow or wetland complexes along rivers that are really results from the presence of multiple beaver dams. And we're finding that uh, a situation that's similar to what we see where there's old growth forest and a large number of log jams, where you have this extra physical complexity that really slows down the flow and allows sediment and organic matter to be deposited, you have much higher rates of biochemical reactions and much higher productivity for almost any organism that ecologists look at, from plants to microbes to insects and fish. So most of my research has been focusing uh, here in Colorado, and I've particularly been using Rocky Mountain National Park and some of the uh, less accessible parts of the park as an analog for what much of this landscape might have looked like in the past, and then using some of the more intensively managed rivers to compare against and say, okay, these are physically simpler rivers, do we see differences in the way in which um, nutrients are taken up and the rate of production of things like insects and fish? And preliminary results suggest that, yes, we definitely do. Okay. And when you say the physical complexity of, of rivers, I assume you're talking about what we, we talked about earlier as the diversity or heterogeneity of, of the river. Exactly. The, right. the simplest river would be something like a, a drainage canal. So 
very uniform with uh, straight banks, smooth, very consistent downstream gradient. The more physically complex or heterogeneous a natural river is, the more you've got things like bank irregularities, uh, deep and shallow spots as you go downstream, differences in whether it's a sand, a cobble, or boulder bed, wood in the channel. So all these things that create uh, something other than a simple uniform canal. Sure. And so all these headwaters rivers that um, are, let's say, becoming simpler in their in their nature, that is allowing more, uh, say, nutrients and things like that to just essentially be flushed down the conduit. And and as you mentioned, a leaky rivers project you're working on. Is that what you're referring to as leaky rivers? Could you talk about what what a leaky river is to you? Yeah, it's, it's exactly what you were just describing. It leaks relative to um, a more complex river. So it leaks water. Uh, for example, when you have a flood, if you have a more physically complex system, you're going to be storing water in the floodplain, in the subsurface. That storage may be a matter of hours or at most days, but it does help to reduce the a flood peak, it attenuates it so that it, the flood peak moves downstream more slowly. Uh, so if you remove that physical complexity, the rivers leak water, which may sound funny because rivers do leak water, but um, the rivers become leaky with respect to sediment. Again, if you've got places where you reduce the velocity of the current, that allows sediment that's in transport to be deposited, and it can be stored there for fairly short periods of time, or in some of the floodplains that we've been looking at, even in uh, the upper reaches of some of these networks in Rocky Mountain National Park, we're finding that sediment and organic matter can be stored there for thousands of years. So we can store water for shorter periods of time, sediment, organic matter for longer periods of time. And if you reduce that complexity, you tend to just flush all of that material downstream very quickly. So hence the name, leaky rivers. Sure. And what what are the implications of of flushing all that downstream because all that's going to end up in, I assume the ocean. So what are, what are the implications of sending all those nutrients and things downstream? Well, before it gets to the ocean, it goes through a lot of people drinking water supply <laughs> because a lot of people in this country and elsewhere, uh, and certainly in Colorado, use surface water for their drinking supplies as opposed to groundwater. So if you have higher amounts of nitrogen and carbon in there, those by themselves are not necessarily bad, but when you get high concentrations, different things can happen. Um, I use nitrogen as an example. If you have high amounts of nitrogen, that can facilitate blue-green algal blooms, and at a minimum, it makes the water taste bad, and then they add more disinfectant chemicals, which can have unfortunate effects. Uh, in some cases, those blue-green algal species can produce toxins that are quite harmful to uh, other animals and to humans. If you have more nitrogen in the water in dissolved form, it's been correlated with something called non-Hodgkinson's lymphoma, a type of cancer. If you have really high levels of dissolved oxygen in the water, you can have something called blue baby syndrome, which is, uh, as the name implies, that children are not able to um, process that nitrogen very well, so it attaches to the hemoglobin in their blood and can influence their ability to breathe, basically. Um, if all of that keeps going going away from human drinking water supplies for a moment, if it, you have a lot of nitrogen or other nutrients going down to the ocean, then the worst case is you have things like eutrophication. 
And eutrophication is, is kind of a fancy name for too much food. So again, <laughs> lots of blue-green algae. They have lots of food. They uh, There's an explosion of their population. And then when they die, as all those algal cells are decaying, they actually uh, require the dissolved oxygen in the water as, or they take it up as they decay. So you can lower the dissolved oxygen levels to the point where you kill other organisms like fish or shellfish. And a worst-case scenario is you create something called hypoxia, which is another uh, fancy word for death of marine ecosystems. And this is a big problem in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, in many estuaries around the world, where there are very high nutrient levels coming out. You have these so-called dead zones that can be quite large. The one in the Gulf of Mexico, which is mainly fed by excess nutrients coming down the Mississippi River, and some years is equal in area to the state of New Jersey. And it can become so large that it migrates out of the Gulf and goes up the east coast of the U.S., and it kills a lot of fish and shellfish as it goes because there's these very low levels of dissolved oxygen in the water. So there are some very severe consequences of having excess nutrients in the water from the quality of human drinking water to the effect on nearshore and estuarine ecosystems. And any particular small channel or wetland by itself is not going to have that effect on the ocean. The point is that you have thousands of these. If we go back to that idea that most river networks, 70 or 80 percent of the network is these smaller channels, if you destroy the ability of most or even all of those to retain nutrients, then you have this massive cumulative effect by the time you integrate all that downstream where a larger river reaches the ocean. Well, that, that is absolutely amazing that that the headwater streams and rivers affect us so so much farther down down river, so to speak. It's uh, it's really fascinating how everything's interconnected in that regard. Well, Professor Professor Wool, we've uh, taken up a lot of your time this morning, and we really appreciate uh, you coming on. Is there anywhere that you would like to send folks who have more questions or any questions about what you're you're doing, where could they find out more about you and how could they contact you? Um, in terms of finding out more about what I'm doing, uh, probably the easiest way is my website at Colorado State University, and it's got my email address on there. So I think if you just put in my name, uh, and then particularly if you add Colorado State University, you should be able to find it pretty easily. If they're interested in learning more uh, without necessarily contacting me, I've written a series of books that are aimed at non-specialist audiences, really about natural history and environmental change on rivers. Uh, Virtual Rivers is one that focuses on the mountain rivers in Colorado. Disconnected Rivers is one that looks across the um, entire continental U.S. at different types of effects on rivers, human effects on rivers. And then sort of Colorado to the U.S., and then I went global. Uh, There's one called A World of Rivers that looks at environmental change on 10 of the world's major rivers. And the most recent one is called Wide Rivers Crossed. It came back to the local scale, and I was looking at rivers of the American prairie, so the South Platte in the Western Prairie and then the Illinois River in the Eastern Prairie. Terrific. Well, that's great. Well, again, Ellen, thanks so much for your time, and uh, really appreciate it. Goodbye. <laughs> my pleasure. That was my interview with Professor Ellen Wool of Colorado State University. You know, I've learned a lot from doing these podcasts, but I learned a tremendous amount in this one. Ellen was just so full of information and conveyed it in such a great way. That headwater streams make up 70 to 80% of the total length of our riverways is a mind-blowing fact. 
And the ability of those headwater streams to store and filter carbon and nutrients is an important benefit that I frankly was completely ignorant of and never would have thought about were it not for Ellen's discussion. I now might take a different approach when we're hiking and the kids want to throw sticks into the stream. Another important aspect of Ellen's discussion pertains to the way in which we view our waterways. We need to see them more as ecosystems, like Ellen said, rather than just as conduits. That's the key aspect I got out of the podcast. I'm glad she informed me of this because I'm as guilty as anyone of thinking about rivers from that conduit mentality. And I now realize the interconnectedness of rivers and streams to the surrounding environment and especially the downstream environment. Well, please let me know what interested you about the interview by leaving a comment on thewatervalues.com or by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993. Thank you again for helping us hit 1,000 downloads and for all the great feedback. I'm going to continue working on the things you've asked me to work on and the topics you've asked me to explore. Some of those topics include bottled water, which we explored last week, water as a business risk, that's coming up soon, invasive species, the Great Lakes Basin, and more. That's the goal to keep improving and to bring you the content you want to hear, so thank you again. Finally, if you've been enjoying the podcasts, please consider leaving a rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and any other podcast directory on which you download the podcast. That would be so very helpful in spreading the word about the podcast. And don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. Well, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with us.